It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 281 for February 26th, 2012. This week, Linux aims to save Windows bacon. None dare call it Googlegate. Would you like a little Ubuntu with your Android? And in short circuits, Sony, the victim of bad timing. Time to organize your office. And an Australian woman sentenced for scamming some Nigerian scammers. When something goes wrong with a Windows system, sometimes the best solution involves formatting the drive and reinstalling Windows. Although Windows 7 has substantially reduced the need to perform this task every year, in fact, since installing Windows 7, I've never needed to do it. So although it has reduced the need, it's still a sufficiently serious problem that a rescue option really is needed. So how about one that's based on Linux? And here I have to sound an irony alert. BootMed, that's what I'll be talking about today, is based on Ubuntu Linux. And it could well be your best chance of recovering a damaged Windows system. BootMed is, as the website points out, an Ubuntu remix for those new to Linux. Its main goal is to help the average Windows user recover a computer that will not boot. BootMed is not a one-trick kitten, though. It can help you with a variety of other problems. The time to prepare for a disaster is before it occurs, so I think everybody who owns a computer running Windows. You should download the appropriate version of BootMed, burn it to a CD, or if you download the 64-bit version, to a DVD, and give it a test run. When something goes wrong, you'll be ready. You do need to get the right version for your computer, 32-bit or 64-bit. Running the wrong version won't cause any additional problems, it just won't boot. I have downloaded both versions because I have both 32- and 64-bit systems. And you never know when somebody might need the one I don't have. So I have both of them. Besides booting from a CD or DVD, you can also install BootMed so that it'll boot from a USB flash drive if your computer supports booting from USB devices. Most do these days. In either case, at boot time, you'll need to configure the computer's CMOS to boot from the disk or the memory stick. The BootMed device is live, meaning that it is its own self-contained operating system. Everything you need is on the BootMed disk. It boots to Linux, but then what? You're undoubtedly wondering how you can solve Windows problems with Linux, particularly if you've never seen Linux before. This is where BootMed is remarkably different from most recovery tools. After you boot the computer, BootMed launches the Linux version of Firefox and connects to the BootMed website. The website opens to a page of options for things that BootMed can repair, and after selecting one of those, you'll be taken to a series of step-by-step instructions. You do have to have a wired connection for this to work, though, or you need to know enough about Linux and your Wi-Fi network to set up your own wireless connection. So it will work wirelessly, but only after you set it up. The wired version works automatically. 
If the computer has a problem booting to the internal hard drive, you'll be taken to a list of instructions at myfixlog.com, where you'll be told how to identify the boot drive. The instructions also describe a few mechanical problems that can cause a drive to fail, and then suggests methods that you might be able to use to recover data if the drive is failing. Assuming you don't see or hear any indications of physical failure, you'll want to scan for viruses. BootMed comes with two antivirus programs, Stinger and Clamwin, Windows applications that do not normally run under Ubuntu. The instructions explain how to configure Wine, a program that makes it possible to run Windows programs in Ubuntu. If no virus was found or you've removed malware and the computer still doesn't boot, the next step would be to attach an external hard drive so that you can copy data files from the computer for safekeeping. Of course, if you already have a full system backup, this step isn't really necessary. But even if you do have a full system backup, saving the files this way isn't a bad idea, just in case. If you can't see any files to recover, well, then it's time to make an image of the drive. This requires a second hard drive, because the failing hard drive will continue to deteriorate, and probably quickly. It's important to get an image of everything you can the image won't help you recover any files directly, but it will be an exact image of the failing drive, and you might be able to find somebody who can use that image to recover files. Be aware that this is an expensive process. Having a backup is a lot better. Now this is powerful stuff for an application that will cost you only a few minutes to download and 50 cents or so for a blank disk, or if you get both versions, a buck for two blank disks. BootMed can help you recover from stupidity, too. Many people who work on computers have occasionally deleted the wrong partition on a hard drive. Been there, done that, they didn't hand out any t-shirts. If you realize your mistake before making any other changes, the recovery is easy with an application such as BootMed. The included test disk program allows you to find, analyze, and recover lost or deleted partitions. The BootMed website will send you to myfixlog.com for detailed instructions. The same is true if you've deleted a file that you didn't intend to delete. When a file is deleted, it's not really destroyed. Instead, the operating system is just told to treat the area where the file is stored as free space. So the first thing to do if you've accidentally deleted a file is this. Nothing. Don't install anything new. Stop any process that writes data to the disk. Turn the computer off, in fact, and boot to the BootMed disk. Once you're running BootMed, which runs on the optical drive, not your computer's hard drive, you can use the installed applications to recover files. And yes, you guessed it, my FixLog has detailed instructions. And what if you don't want to save data? What if you want to get rid of it? Wiping a disk or a pen drive using the utilities provided by BootMed will remove all traces of your personal files. Before wiping a system drive, be sure that you have the CD or DVD you need to reinstall the operating system. This is something you typically would do if you're going to be selling the computer or giving it away. So, why does the Linux community want to help users of Windows? Many in the Linux community are people who remember when computer users were part of a small group of social misfits. These are people who helped each other because they understood the community knew more than any individual. So that might be part of the reason. But I have to wonder if the Linux community believes that some Windows users will become so frustrated with Windows that they'll eventually just give up and install Linux. Well, stranger things have happened. 
The bottom line, five cats, BootMed is a Linux utility that can save damaged Windows computers. BootMed is free. It runs on Linux. It can remove malware, restore files. It can restore directories. It can fix or restore partitions, repair a damaged boot drive, securely delete files from any computer you're selling or giving away. This is a rescue disk that you should have. And, again, it's free. For more information, visit the BootMed website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. is in trouble again, and once again, it's about privacy matters. At issue is the relatively minor issue of cookies, which most computer experts consider to be largely harmless and helpful, but which some privacy experts consider to be useless and demonic. The truth is likely to be found at some place other than either extreme. Now, I'm sure that somebody has already tagged Gate onto the end of Google to create the sonorous but still silly Google Gate. The practice of adding Gate to the end of any supposed misdeed does not reflect well on what passes for journalism these days, so except for noting that I expect that silly name will be used if it hasn't been already, you will not see it mentioned here. A group called Consumer Watchdog has asked the Federal Trade Commission to take action against Google because they say it violated an earlier privacy agreement with the FTC by tracking cookies in a way that ignores the default privacy settings of Safari, Apple's browser for Apple's OS X and Microsoft's Windows operating systems. A Stanford grad student, Jonathan Mayer, wrote about the process that Google uses and the Wall Street Journal picked up the story. When the newspaper contacted Google, Google took the code that installed tracking cookies on Safari out of production. Every browser except Safari is delivered with cookies enabled. Apple elected to deliver the browser with the cookies feature disabled. Disabling cookies may improve user privacy slightly, but it also hampers the operation of some websites. The Wall Street Journal describes the problem this way, and I quote the article. Safari generally blocks cookies that come from elsewhere, such as advertising networks or other trackers, but there are exceptions to this rule, including that if you interact with an advertisement or form in certain ways, it's allowed to set a cookie even if you aren't technically visiting the site. Google's code, which was placed on certain ads that used the company's double-click ad technology, took advantage of this loophole. As usual, Google says it is not to blame. The fault lies with the browser. They didn't mean to do it anyway. Quoting Google, the journal mischaracterizes what happened and why. We used known Safari functionality to provide features that signed-in Google users had enabled. It's important to stress that these advertising cookies do not collect personal information. Users of Internet Explorer, Firefox, and Chrome were not affected, said Google, nor were any users of any browser, including Safari, who have opted out of our Internet-based advertising program using Google's Ad Preferences Manager. End quote. It's not just Safari, though. Microsoft said that Google's techniques also affected users of the Internet Explorer. Entering the fray, Microsoft's Dean Hakamovich, Corporate Vice President of Internet Explorer, wrote in a Microsoft blog, We found that Google bypasses the P3P privacy protection feature in IE. 
The result is similar to the recent reports of Google's circumvention of privacy protections in Apple's Safari web browser, even though the actual bypass mechanism Google uses is different. End quote. Let's step back and look at that, though. Microsoft is no friend of Google and sees Google as a competitor in the company's key and highly profitable office suite marketplace. And Google says that Microsoft's claims are incorrect. For some background, consider the Wikipedia entry on P3P. I quote Wikipedia, The platform for privacy preferences project, P3P, is a protocol allowing websites to declare their intended use of information they collect about web browser users. Designed to give users more control of their personal information when browsing, P3P was developed by the World Wide Web Consortium, also known as W3C, and officially recommended on April 16, 2002. Development ceased shortly thereafter, and there have been few implementations of P3P. Microsoft Internet Explorer is the only major browser to support P3P. The president of Trustee has stated that P3P has not been implemented widely due to the difficulty and lack of value. Google says that it is impractical to comply with Microsoft's P3P because the policy is widely non-operational. Because P3P is essentially a dead project, few website owners, including this one, by the way, bothered ever to implement the technology. It was largely seen as dead on arrival in 2002, and the intervening decade has done nothing to change that. So, well, I guess we should expect this silliness to continue for a while with the various back-and-forth banter, and then we'll move on to something more serious. Perhaps it'll be the national threat from that killer chemical dihydrogen monoxide. Linux goes, Ubuntu is the king of the desktop, but it's still a tiny fish in a gigantic ocean. Now, Canonical says that it's planning to release a version of Ubuntu for Android devices. One key point, at least for now, is that the Android device must be docked. Your first reaction to that might be something along the lines of, huh? You won't be replacing the Android operating system with Ubuntu. Instead, Ubuntu will work in conjunction with the Android operating system. Canonical sees this as a way to merge mobile and desktop computing environments. The goal is to provide a desktop-like computing environment on a tiny mobile device. I haven't seen this in action yet, but it sounds like a promising idea, particularly for those who are pushing their mobile devices to the limits of what those devices and their operating systems can do. It'll work like this. You'll install Ubuntu on your Android device, and when you're using it as a handheld, nothing will change. When you plug the device into a docking station, it'll begin to work more like a desktop computer. You'll need an Android device with an HDMI output, plug your desktop monitor into that, and you'll have the Unity desktop on your screen. This isn't going to be a desktop computer capable of performing power user tasks, of course, but you will have access to the data that's on your phone, such as email messages, SMS messages, and all your contacts. And you'll still be able to use it to make phone calls. 
Uh, you knew there'd be some restrictions, of course. <laughs> Here, some of them are. The Android device will need to be either a dual-core or a quad-core ARM processor, and it'll need at least 512 megabytes of memory installed. x86 was mentioned as being possible, but for the time being, ARM is the only focus. The bottom line is that most current handsets don't have the horsepower that's required, but future handsets will. Also, few, if any, phones have the kind of docking station that'll be required to make this work. So whether the phone manufacturers will make any is still an open question. Short Circuits, Sony's Vito went on sale this week. It's a portable game device that sells for $250. Do you want a game with that? Another 50 bucks or so per game. Memory? Well, you're going to need some. And Sony devices use Sony's proprietary and high-priced memory stick devices. Something really seems amiss here. This isn't a full-size game console. It's a handheld device. And Sony may not have noticed it, but iPhones and Android phones are being used for games these days, and most of those games are free or cost a dollar or maybe ten. Perhaps Sony is hoping that some natural event will wipe out the world's supply of smartphones. I keep thinking about that old axiom regarding those who ignore history. About a year ago, Nintendo released a 3DS handheld game device selling for $250. And they sold like hotcakes on a 100-degree day, which is to say, not very well. Four months later, Nintendo dropped the price to $80, down to $80 from $250, and they started selling. Sony may have to do the same thing, although sales of the Vita have been brisk in Japan, half a million sold since December. In an attempt to get some traction for the new device, Sony is spending about $50 million on marketing, and they'll be running a sweepstakes promotion with Taco Bell to give away some of the units. Leap Day is coming up and perhaps with it the new beta version of Windows 8, but that's not what we're talking about now. It's the uncommon news release that earns enough of my attention to be included on the program, but one I received this week from Allison Beckwith at OFM, which refers to itself as a leading office and school furniture manufacturer, distributor, and wholesaler, it was sufficiently inventive to pass that test, even though it did include that bit about being a leading whatever, but apparently that's wording that every PR flack learns at the knee of some great master. By the way, closed-circuit memo to PR folks, please omit that bit about your company being a leading anything. That's one of the best ways to get me to throw it away without reading further. But I did read this one further, and I found that OFM was founded in 1995 and that it contracts with manufacturers in Mexico, Taiwan, and China to design furniture and office products that meet the highest industry standards. Well, at this point, I was beginning to yawn. The point of the news release, though, was this. You should use this year's Leap Day to organize your office. Okay, that's kind of a good idea. Let's roll with that. 
The news release quoted Blake Zalkberg, chief operating officer of OFM. No one likes to take time out of their work week to clean up and organize their desk, even though it'll help them be more productive and happier in the long run. That's why we recommend that you do it on Leap Day, the one extra day we get every four years. If you can't organize when you literally have an extra day, when will you? Do you really have an extra day, or is it just an ordinary Wednesday, right smack dab in the middle of the week? Well, anyway, Zuckberg went on to offer five tips for creating a more productive workspace, and they are worthwhile. Clean your desk. Many people have a tendency to stack papers and other work materials in little piles around their desks. That can be helpful for a while. But if those piles are for projects that are finished, file them or throw them away. Keep it close. For paperwork that you need to reference frequently, consider a rolling file pedestal. Put the really important files in a red folder at the near end of the drawer for quick reference. Declutter. That novelty softball with a vendor's logo on it, the old mug with the broken handle, the extra pens, you don't need them. If you aren't going to use something on a regular basis, it's just clutter. Throw it away. Here's one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Get virtually tidy. Don't forget your computer. Too many people work off desktops full of dozens of icons for old spreadsheets and documents. If you don't want to spend time organizing them, just put them all in a single folder and keep your desktop clear. And finally, wipe it down. Bring a spray bottle of common household cleaner to work. Not only will it keep your desk germ-free to wipe it down from time to time, but it'll also remind you to keep your desk clear enough that you can. Actually, I've always felt that a clean desk is the sign of a sick mind, and I've quoted this statement more than once. If a cluttered desk is the sign of a cluttered mind, what's an empty desk the sign of? But I think this is true. An organized workspace does make the worker more efficient. And if I ever manage to organize my own workspace, I'll be sure to let you know. If you'd like more information about OFM, you'll find a link to the site on the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> According to the Courier-Mail in Australia, a woman has pleaded guilty to scamming a bunch of Nigerians who were trying to scam her. This boggles my mind, but you may recall I have a relatively low boggle threshold. Here's the story. Believe it or don't, Sarah Jane Cochrane Ramsey has pleaded guilty to charges of aggravated robbery. She signed up to be an agent for a car-selling internet scam back in 2010. The Nigerians who were behind the scam said that they would deposit dirty money from their sales to her Australian account, and she would transfer the cash, keeping 8% for her efforts. She should transfer the money to a Nigerian account. Instead, she decided to keep it all. And according to the Courier-Mail, she spent it all. So, <laughs> what's the problem? B but wait... The 23-year-old woman will be sentenced next month for her failed attempt at online robbery. She appears to have defrauded the crooks without even knowing that she was involved in their scam. In other words, Sarah Jane Cochrane Ramsey wasn't trying to teach the crooks a lesson. She just saw an opportunity to cash in. The woman explained to the judge that she had no idea she was involved in any scam besides her own. Unfortunately, that admission severely limited her defense options. 
Cochrane Ramsey was discovered when the real car buyers who were being defrauded went to the police, and the police traced the cash back to Cochrane Ramsey's account. According to the newspaper, the Brisbane woman fleeced the Nigerian scam artists by stealing more than $30,000 from their internet car sales racket. Police inquiries found her employers were based in Nigeria, but had been using a web server in New York to run their dodgy sales listings. One might reasonably hope that when she is sentenced next month, the judge at least will appreciate the irony of the situation. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.